Hey, Whiskey Ringers, more updates coming your way. First off, the Jack Daniels barrels are totally sold out. These went in about a week, week and a half at most. If you haven't received your bottle stickers, please reach out to me with your address and how many you got, and I'll be happy to get those to you as soon as possible. Next up, our current single barrel, the Podcaster Yak Attack. A barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, is live and available on my site. You can go to stores.mashnetworks.co, that's .co, slash W-I-M-W-R. That's W-I-M-W-R for Whiskey In My Wedding Ring. Patrons get first access to this one too, and got free shipping alongside it. The next barrel pick that's scheduled is a toasted oat whiskey from Spirits of French Lick, which should be available in about February, and will also go through the same store. I also have a few picks rolling around right now that might pop up in the next few months. Best way to get first access, first knowledge of these things, special benefits, and codes for these bottles is to become a patron at www.patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring. You can support for as little as a dollar a month with tiers at $5, 15 and 25 The 15 and $25 tiers also come with the opportunity to not only get samples from me, but the $25 tier lets you join me for barrel picks, whether they're in person or virtual. And with a lot of barrel picks hopefully coming down the line, this is the best time to sign up. There are just a few spots left at those top tiers, so if you're interested, don't miss out. Sign up now. Finally, I am thrilled to welcome Black Button Distilling out of Rochester, New York, as my newest sponsor. They've just opened a beautiful new facility, and I got to visit, tour around, and do an on-site episode that'll come out later this month. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for supporting. Sign up on Patreon and rate and review wherever you can. Hey, folks. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to bring on someone I met very recently, but have been reading for many years and following their work, Miss Maggie Kimbrell. Hello. Thanks for having me. Happy to. I was, uh, yes, purely by chance we met at the KBF, uh, yeah. really at, a, at the Broken Barrel event around the KBF and then yeah that was i almost didn't go to that because it was so late at night and i was feeling very elderly that night and i was like why is it so late and so dark i was too and i when i saw it was like i was i was torn because i had there were like 15 20 people and then i knew some people had gone to a mictors event that night i believe Mm, yeah Um, and there were some dinners at some of the distilleries and i mean there was a lot of stuff going on so and but I, I drove all the way back in from, from the Louisville area um, mm-hmm. for this party that's in Bardstown that started at like, what was it, eight o'clock or something? And I was something like, this that, is yeah. too late. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt it too. I'd driven up from, flown into and driven up from Nashville the day before and was also staying in the Louisville area yep, across yep. the river. Made yep. the mistake of staying in Indiana. It's nothing against Indiana. It was just a much longer drive. <laughs> so. That's the nation's repository of orange berries. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like, like I said, I I really am happy to have you on. I've been thinking about reaching out for a long time because as I read Whiskey Magazine, American Whiskey Magazine, uh, in addition to other publications of which you're a part, and this kind of just fell into our laps. So with that, as promised, we'll jump in right away. We're going to skip the get to know you questions. You'll find out, I think, a lot about Maggie while we're doing this interview. But of course, there will be the research notes in the show notes for this episode if you're interested in learning more uh, about how she got into whiskey writing and into the industry. 
So the main thing you need to know is I have no filter and I just keep talking. Well, the filter now part of is like, I can attest to you from some of the, uh, the whiskey cast happy hours. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I, I made Mark make a really funny face one time. <laughs> And oh gosh, and I can't even remember what I said. It was really, really funny and kind of a little raunchy, a little NSFW. I'm not sure if I have that in there. It, it's possible I have these in my question because I definitely have some from that that night. So with that, we'll jump right in. So first question. You've been writing for various publications, and we'll get to the list of those later on, but for various publications for about seven, eight years now. And over that time, a lot has changed, not only on the whiskey production side, but also on the media side. Mm -hmm. And uh, now being myself on this kind of quote unquote influencer, although I don't always agree with that term, uh, the influencer side with more people on Instagram, Facebook, having their own websites and podcasts and all of that. From your perspective as someone who's been writing for both sites and whiskey magazines, how has this rise of influencer culture affected anything from readership to the stories being run? So the main thing is, um, and, and it all kind of comes back to this, the ad revenue base is kind of cannibalizing itself. And the, the main way that you see that play out is, um, you know, it's, it's really hard uh, for publications to pay writers well, uh, because they're just not getting the ad revenue, you know, when it, when it back in the days when it was like basically three magazines that were dedicated to the, you know, the spirit of whiskey and may and whiskey cast. And that was, you know, whiskey cast was the podcast. And then there were the three magazines. Um, you know, there was a lot more ad revenue to go around to pay people like me to do what we do. Um, you know, with the rise of blogs and podcasts and things like that, you know, we get a lot more voices, we get a lot more diverse voices, which is great. Um, but what it ends up happening is that people are finding there's a lot less meat on the bone, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, like I, I have a lot of publication, <laughs> one of my, one of my favorite things that keeps happening to me repeatedly is people are like, oh, hey, we think you're going to be perfect for us. Uh, we just slashed our budget, but we think you're going to be perfect. And I'm like, thanks. Thanks so much for thinking of me after you just slashed your budget. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a I, I understand why the problem's taking place. Right. I mean, you know, we, we do have more distilleries now significantly. When I started doing this, there were like 70 distilleries in the entire United States. And now there are 3,400 uh, locations with DSPs. That's not like individual distilleries. Some of these are like tasting rooms and things like that. But still, I mean, that's a that's a huge shift, right? So there are more brands, there are more distilleries, but that doesn't necessarily translate into more ad revenue because a lot of these places are teeny, teeny, tiny. You know, like there are a lot of places making a barrel a week uh, or, you know, 10 barrels a month or something like that. Um, and they they don't have money to support uh, the publications that are getting their information out there. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about what media does, what media can do, who does what, what's an appropriate ask for different people, uh, different, you know, different types of publications and things like that. You know, we kind of all get lumped in a lot. Uh, I get a lot of pitches for tequila, rosé, you know, restaurants and 
Jersey Shore, you know, like I, and I'm just like, why are you bringing me this? Well, you wrote, a, you wrote about whiskey the other day. I'm like, okay, that doesn't mean that I cover restaurants in New Jersey. Um, do they even have whiskey on the menu? Probably not. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, uh, you know, with the changes in the media, you also have to have PR people who really understand that, that ecosystem. There are a lot of people who get it really, really wrong in the PR space, you know, but then there are a lot of people who have been doing PR in this industry throughout this, this kind of shift. And they understand like, these are the people we go for, go to for this. These are the people we go to for this. And, you know, like we, they're, they're really careful about making sure that they're sending things to the right people. So there's, a, yeah, that's, that's a lot of information, a lot of different sides, but it all kind of comes back to the fact that, um, you know, the, the advertising landscape is kind of cannibalizing itself right now. And so it's really difficult. You know, like when I, when I walked onto the scene about 10 years ago, um, I, I wasn't making very much. I, my first job, I was making $3 an article, um, as a local beat writer, um, which is embarrassing to, to say now, but what's more embarrassing is that, you know, like I, I don't make a whole lot more than that now. I mean, uh, because back then there was ad revenue to support a lot of writers covering a lot of different things. And we've seen this kind of shift it, not just in the whiskey space, but in, in all the whole media landscape is, you know, like newsrooms are paring down, newspapers are paring down, you know, there's a lot of like conglomeration and buy, you know, buying up uh, newsrooms and kind of trying to have like one person run 10 newspapers and, and things like that. And uh, it's really changing the landscape in a lot of ways. But it sounds like a mix between, I guess, two extremes, one being the pole of it's democratized whiskey information mm-hmm. in a certain yeah. way because yeah. there are a so lot many more sources. And, exactly. A lot of voices, a lot of diverse voices, as you pointed out. Uh, also just so many more places to talk about and stories to talk about. Absolutely. But on the other hand, uh, on in a different poll is this just flood in the content space yeah. of so many voices. And I mean, I've spoken before, I don't have a video component of the pocket or video content because there's just no time for it. Yeah. I mean, even if I wanted to invest in it from my own perspective, if you look at kind of whiskey tube from six to midnight every night of the week, there's at least one major player in every hour. And it's just too much. So it, yeah. it's not it's not worth it. I'd rather just be the person you listen to on the commute and you know, where hopefully you're not watching on the commute. eyes on the road people eyes on the road no i mean like i i was on i was on the highway the other day and and uh drove past several people who were who were looking down into their laps while they were driving and like that's the unfortunate reality that we live in now but yeah if you're listening to this in your car um please put your phone down and uh you know pay attention we want you to live to chase that next bottle yes and the uh speed limits are just a little bit higher down where you live than they are up here. So, which I love while I'm driving there, believe me. Oh yeah. It's a fun place to drive, especially if you get some, get back in some of them hollers out, out in Eastern Kentucky, let her rip. Yeah. It's a lot of fun back there. And my uh, first trip there, just side note was in uh, May of last year. And then I went back in August of that year and uh, May was 
basically in and out of Lexington the whole time. August, okay. I just did six days, packed everything I could, two days out in Louisville, two days out of Bardstown, two days out of Nashville, and just packed it with distilleries and producers. And I remember realizing on my last day when I was getting ready to go to the airport in Nashville that I haven't seen one highway cop this entire trip. And they're there. But I, uh, I mentioned it to one of my friends who lives in, in Eastern, uh, sorry, in Western Kentucky. And um, he's kind of gave the whole, like, yeah, we kind of take care of our own thing down there. <laughs> but so, yeah, there is an element of that. However, I will say in Tennessee, Tennessee straight, state troopers do not mess around. You do not speed in Tennessee. You do not try to argue with them if they pull you over. They are serious about their jobs. Um, in Kentucky, we have a lot of undercover. So that, you know, especially, you know, all the all the states where the major interstates go through 65, 75, you know, those are all big like drug trafficking routes. So that's mostly kind of I think what they're what they're looking for, but they will absolutely pull you over and they will absolutely ruin your day. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, this next thing I want to talk about came out of uh, the first Whiskey Cast Happy Hour that I listened to. Uh, this was back in August of 2021. So this was the one you did with, obviously, Mark, uh, Peggy No Stevens, and Heather Wibbles. Mm-hmm. Um, so just about two years ago, a little over. As someone who whose job it is to uh, to talk to these distilleries and producers and people in the industry and to taste and evaluate, especially between magazines and competitions. I'm curious to hear what your COVID experience was like. So that's actually a really great question. One of the, one of the jobs that I have is I am the co-chair of world whiskeys, uh, North America. So, um, it's, it's actually really important for me to not catch COVID. Um, I did, I don't know if I caught COVID. I suspect maybe I did in 2020 because I lost my sense of smell and taste for a short period of time. Um, and I started to get really nervous that I was not going to, uh, be able to judge that year because we did all of our judging remotely. Um, and I was able to retrain my senses to come back. So I, I don't know if it was an allergy thing. It could have been an allergy thing because it was very temporary and I didn't have any other, other symptoms. And maybe I was just like more aware of it because I was freaked out about catching COVID. Uh, but I have this nice little at-home COVID test that I keep um, next to my desk. It's a tiny bottle of Jack Daniels. And every once in a while, I just open it up and go, banana taffy. I don't have COVID. And then I put it back and it stays right there. Um, so um, I still mask in planes and in airports when I'm traveling. Um, pretty much before I walk into the airport, I put that mask on. It stays on pretty much the whole time until I get to my destination. Um, I'm not masking everywhere I go anymore. Uh, I do, you know, I, the, the COVID shots seem to work really well for me. I mean, to the point that my husband has had COVID like three times and I sleep in the bed with him and I don't get it. So um, something is working for me. Something is keeping me from getting COVID so far. Thank goodness. Um but yeah, it's it's a big concern to to worry about uh, losing your sense of taste and smell when you literally taste and smell things for a living. Um, I I know a few people in the industry who have gotten COVID who have been like, oh my god, what am I going to do? I'm going to lose my job because I can't taste or smell anything. And so you know, there are some some folks that I've talked to 
who have had to go through really rigorous um, training regimens to regain that sense of smell and taste. Um, so it's, it's really important for me to not have to go through that. Uh, I'm very cognizant of it. And so that was one of the reasons why I went and got my COVID booster today, because, you know, we're going to all be together. I tried to get it before I went to Las Vegas. I judged the Las Vegas Global Spirits competition a couple of weeks ago, and I tried to get it before I went to that. And I showed up at Walgreens and the whole like metal shade thing was down and it was like 2.30 in the afternoon. I was like, they're not at lunch. Where are they? And I found like somebody stocking shelves. And I was like, when's the pharmacist going to get back? And she's like, oh, we don't have a pharmacist right now. We haven't opened our pharmacy in days. And I was like, but I have an appointment. <laughs> How are they taking appointments if I can't, like nobody's there? Um, and And then I reached out to Walgreens and they were like, oh, ask the pharmacist. And I was like, I just told you the pharmacist isn't there. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'm, it's something that I'm very cognizant of and uh, trying to take a lot of precautions. And, you know, the vaccines seem to be doing their job. Uh, but when I travel, I I'm going to wear a mask on a plane forever. I mean, that was a that was an early decision where I was like, oh, hey, you know, I used to get sick. I, I travel a lot. And in 2019, I was on the road one week out of every month. I got sick every single time uh, just because, you know, we all know now air quality in planes is very poor air quality a lot of places is very poor but especially when you cram like several hundred people in this tiny metal tube you know there's not a lot of not a lot of fresh air going on in there uh so i'm i i made the decision early i was like oh hey like put this like cloth thing on my face and i don't get sick all the time i'm in there's a I, i'm i don't have a formal question about this particular article but it's uh it was co-written by you uh, and it was about Elizabeth McCall's career uh, at Brown Foreman and, and Woodford Reserve. And part of the article did tend to not specifically to COVID, but it was about just keeping yourself in almost an athletic mindset. Like athletes mm -hmm. are always ready mm -hmm. to, to go and to uh, they're always prepared to perform. Yeah. And if you, if you want to do that from this perspective, you need to take every you precaution. Take care of it. Absolutely. And that's, that's another thing that I've, I've spoken to Ashley Barnes in particular about, uh, because, you know, even even before COVID, you know, whiskey tasters have taken great strides to take care of their palates. And she said a lot of things that I didn't even think of. You know, like I always knew things early on. I figured out like you don't want to eat pineapple. And then it turned out I was allergic to pineapple anyway. Um, so that good reason done. for you not to eat it. Okay. <laughs> right. But like the enzymes in pineapple and mangoes, and they, they have like very aggressive enzymes and it can mess with your ability. It, it like, I don't know if you've ever like cut a bunch of mangoes and then your hands feel really soft after, cause it's basically kind of like dissolving that dead layer of skin on your hands. Uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that you want to avoid in your palate before you're going to start tasting whiskey. Um, but, you know, Ashley Barnes took it even further than that saying, you know, like I wait for my tea to cool down before I take that first sip because, you know, you don't want to burn the inside of your mouth because also that would give you some issues. So, you know, there are a lot of things that I've picked up for, along the way from talking to people who have been professional whiskey tasters for a really long time. Uh, these are all things that we have to think about that the average person doesn't, you know, like everybody else is like, ooh, steaming hot pizza, ah, you know, and uh, we we can't do that. We don't have that luxury. We can't burn the roof of our mouth with that greasy pepperoni. 
I feel you. I, I don't take it quite as seriously as I know some of the professional tasters do just because, I mean, I'm smaller audience, smaller, less pressure on me, but um, right. no, I, I do try to do the main things of, you know, not a, a ton of garlic. That's probably the hardest one for me because I just love garlic and cooking with it. Oh, garlic's awesome. Um, but, but you save that for after. Yeah. Go get you some so, garlic cheesy bread. Perfect. Uh, so I try to do those things or at least do whatever I can to cleanse my palate before I taste mm -hmm. things in between tastings. Um, I found that just salt period has been great as a palate cleanser. Um, works really, really well with peated things. Mm, it's scientifically will, it, it binds to the phenols, the creosotes and literally dissolves them and neut neutralizes them. So you could have something peated, have salt, particularly like large granule and just wipes it out and you can that's really interesting because one of the things that we do to prepare glassware if you haven't used it in a while is to rub the inside of it with kosher salt because mm -hmm. that will take away any sort of you know lingering uh smells that might be in there i i got a i, I bought the wrong dish detergent one time and it left a very strong scent on all the dishes and that was like i'm a super taster and so like everything I ate tasted like dish soap. Everything I drank tasted like dish soap. And mm -hmm. I was like, I cannot wait. Of course I didn't throw it away because like the stuff's expensive, right? Yeah. But I was like, oh, I cannot wait until we're done with this box of dish soap. This is terrible. Um, so it's it's really interesting. Like the things, you know, there was one time um I realized that cleaning the Glen Karen's with uh your gross dish sponge, not a good idea. Because then the insides of, or then all the whiskey tastes like a uh, moldy dish sponge. Do it. I, I resisted using the dishwasher on them at first. I, I have so were... many now. I'm just like, if they break, they break. That's basically it. If they break, they break. I know a bunch, anything that's not etched in is going to get eroded over time. Yeah. I get it. But there's so many. It's just, it's what it is. But it's so much easier. Totally. Uh, <laughs> But uh, speaking of Ashley Barnes, this is a great segue, actually. So uh, you wrote another, what I thought was an excellent article in 2021 for Whiskey Magazine. It was titled, A Natural Nose for Whiskey. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, for those who are listening and, and want to understand why, in general, women have a better olfactory senses, it I found it a really easy to understand guide. It drew on both empirical experience. Sorry. Here, let me pull both... down my charts here. Yeah. I you know, keep these right by my desk. Yeah, it, it was empirical, but also drew on scientific research. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very easy to understand. And in, you know, in so this oh, yeah. right here is one of exactly. the studies that I quoted. And because I don't have academic access, I actually just reached out. I, I learned a long time ago. You can actually just email people who write these studies and be like, hey, can you send me a copy of this? And they'll do it. Oh, yeah. I'm doing some research projects right now or planning for some research projects. And yeah. despite going to two different universities for two different degrees, I no longer have access as an alumnus. So um, I've got to get some of these articles anyway, and that's how I'm going to get them. Um, I did read that article, by the way, it was because I'm, I'm a nerd. I started out in biochem before, way before I got into any of this. So I'm interested in all of this. But in, in your article, in referencing women such as Ashley Barnes, Peggy No Stevens, you pointed out that it's, you know, it's not just the science. It's also, I'm quoting, 
it's also the passion, dedication, experience, mm -hmm. intelligence, and skill that transformed inherent ability into a keenly honed tool and propelled them to the highest level of the industry, unquote. And uh, as someone who has joined them both as a super taster and as a uh, functional taster, I should say, so inherent ability and built skill ability, this recognition of women having just better olfactory senses in general is becoming more well-known and also more respected, I think, which is a great thing. Mm -hmm. Now, flipping that on its head, does that knowledge then place an undue burden on women who are blenders, tasters, judges, and reviewers? No, not at all. Um, so I'm going to clarify a couple of points uh, to, to get to the answer. So mm -hmm. the first thing is it's not just... Um, that women have tend to have larger olfactory bulbs as a rule. Um, that doesn't mean that every woman has larger olfactory bulbs than every man. It's it's a spectrum. Nature does not do black and white, right? Oh. Every everything is on a spectrum. Um, and so generally speaking, women have larger olfactory bulbs, which are like right back here, and it's where the nerve endings from your nasal cavity end. And the reason why women have these is not what people think. People think, oh yeah, so you can smell if the food's bad so you don't kill your baby or whatever. And that's not it at all. Uh, what it actually is, is you have to be able to smell your partner's pheromones to be able to determine whether they have a different uh, subtype of um, immune, immune system yeah. than you do. Because if you have offspring that has genes from two different subtypes of immune systems, they're more likely to be um, successful. Not, not as in like your kids are going to turn into a doctor, but as in like, they're going to live past, you know, infancy. Right. Um, and so that, that is one piece of it, but it's, it's not an all or nothing kind of a thing, right? Everybody like people from, from all over the spectrum people there are people all over the spectrum on on you know everywhere the other piece of that is women have faster tend to have faster brain to palate recall uh so we are faster and more accurate in accessing the memory the sensory memories of the foods that we've had so you know when when we teach people about the bourbon tasting technique the first thing we say is you know there are no wrong answers this is all based on your life experience the things you've eaten and so somebody growing up in the deep south is going to have different sensory memories than somebody growing up in the midwest or you know the southwest or wherever uh somebody in the united states is going to have very different sensory memories than like anybody else in the world really um so but women women tend to be more uh tend more toward being able to access more accurate uh descriptors in a quicker manner and so um just because but but i always tell people just because you have these natural could potentially have these natural abilities doesn't mean that somebody who maybe doesn't have these potential abilities um can't learn it so it's really just a matter of and i'm going to pull down another another uh piece of information here so basically oh this isn't even the best one okay 
I wish I had another one. So, and a lot of, this is a flavor wheel. This is, this is mostly having to do with wood. This is from ISC. And so in a lot of flavor wheels, it'll start off, there'll be like a, a little middle where it'll be like general stuff, like nuts, spices, whatever. And then you, you get to the more specific on the outside. And what I tell people is if you can train yourself to get to that general, like nutty, spicy, then you can then you can say okay it's spicy well okay what kind of spice does it remind me of an apple pie does it remind me of a pumpkin spice latte because it's pumpkin spice latte season you know and you can get you can go from the general to the more specific and that's really the whole goal is to be able to get yourself to identify that inner circle the really general stuff and if you can do that and you get really good at it you can start to kind of push your way out a little bit and it doesn't have to be perfect but it is something that is trainable you don't have to be a super taster to be able to train that you don't have to have the fastest brain to palate recall nobody's going to time you when you're sitting at home drinking your whiskey trying to take notes right you can take as much time as you need you can sit there and stare at your damn flavor wheel as long as you want and say okay well you know, I, I think it's maybe coffee, but is it more cafe au lait? Is it more espresso? Is it more bitter? Is it sweeter? Um, you know, and then try to try to branch out from there. And on, so I, on one hand, I, I love that. I tend to p tell people to do the same thing. Uh, my example is usually around sugar. Like if something smells sweet or tastes sweet, is it sugar? Is it honey? Is it syrup? And then what kind Glasses. of sugar? What kind of honey? Molasses, yeah. yeah. And the more you break it down, the more you get into the specifics of the flavors and you start identifying them more and more often. Yeah. That's as you were talking about retraining, training in the first place, and also retraining if you have COVID or something else happens. Uh, it helps to really think about it, take the deep breath and start going down, down, and you down. And to into start the with what you know, right? Mm -hmm. So like everybody knows what banana Laffy Taffy tastes like. I mean, most people probably do in the United States anyway. But like if you if you get down your little bottle of Jack Daniels, the yeast that they use has a very distinct banana ta Laffy Taffy uh, smell to it. And so like if you can start by, you know, identifying that and saying, oh, okay, I, I see, I see, I, I can pick that out then you can kind of move on to other things. And when you're, if you're training or retraining, if you start with things that you're already familiar with, it's a lot easier to reinforce that connection in your brain. When I need to reset, my go-to uh, go is Elijah Craig, just small batch, 94 yeah. proof. It's usually what I think of maybe too generalized, but I think it was like, if I have to tell someone this is what bourbon tastes like, from Kentucky. Mm -hmm. That's usually where I go to, but because I've tasted it so much, yeah, that becomes my, what Jack Daniels is to you. It's just, I can smell it. I can taste it. I know. Okay. My palate's working. It's your reset there, button. Yeah. Cause there are the times where you taste it and you think you're fine. You're not sick as far as you know, but you just start tasting something. You're like, something's off here. Like either it's the whiskey or it's me <laughs> and I need to make sure. And there's, there's also an ephemeral quality to, to tasting whiskey, right? This is something that my friend Michael Veach has written about and talks about a lot 
is, you know, are you in a good mood? Did you get a raise that day? Did you get a new job that day? Are you celebrating? Did somebody die? Are you in mourning? Did your team lose? Did your team win? It's, you know, there are all these things that we do that incorporate this ritual of drinking and they can all have an impact on your perception. So if, if you try something and it's the best thing you've ever had, it might kind of be at least a little bit because you're having a really great day. Uh, if you try something and it's like the worst thing you've ever had, um, maybe before you blame the whiskey, mm -hmm. take a look at what's going on around you. And is it, is it bad? Are you having a bad day? Or are you just looking for a scapegoat? Um, because that could be what it is. I know that in particularly in like a magazine setting or a media setting, you have a strict limit of how many words or characters you can use to describe something. You got this much space. That's it. And so that's when we start getting terms like petrichor because it's, it's one word, nine uh, characters, instead of saying the smell of earth after rain, you know, mm. Mars. Okay, I've, I've never used that one. Can I use that one sometime? Uh, that that's from the Brits. You can steal that as much as you want. Um, <laughs> that that became popular in uh, whiskey advocate for a while when they were bringing more Isla whiskey back. Okay, because it was all earthy and peaty and sure. So, um, so yeah, so Petrichor, nine characters instead of multiple words. Um, sure. People go after Fred Minifer for marzipan, which is almond paste or candied almonds. Yeah. Things. So it's condensing words into things and that can also include sometimes particular scent memories so a particular dessert or a candy mm -hmm. that you were familiar with as a kid mm -hmm. now some of the ones that i've seen i've never heard of in my life <laughs> so i'm curious from just from your experience what are i was going to ask what are your least and most favorite but let's just say what are kind of the weirder notes that you've seen people use I'll tell you, say. I'll tell you one that I used that I, I felt like a total freak show for saying it. Um, <laughs> this was actually, a, this was when I was like kind of first getting started. I was maybe two or three years into writing. Um, and I, I went to this event and it was, I was just getting to know Michael Veach. So I was sitting with him. I was like, Ooh, I'm so cool. I'm sitting with Michael Veach. And, um, you know, everybody's going, we're all trying this really amazing whiskey and everybody's going around and, you know, talking, giving their tasting notes and everything. And he leans over and goes, well, what are you getting this? And I was like, rubber bands. <laughs> and he was like, well, you know, it, I, I don't, I don't know what rubber bands taste like, but you know, if you say you get rubber bands, I'm not going to tell you it's wrong. You know, he's, he always says like, if you say you get black olives in this, I'm going to say you have a really weird palate, but that's not wrong because that's what you get. Um, and so like, I don't, I don't really bust a lot of chops uh, for stuff like that. I think that people making fun of marzipan, like, okay, so your mom didn't cook you cookies for the holidays. How sad for you. Like... Yeah, that, that one was a little <laughs> overblown for a while. Right? For sure. People I mean, were more I, sore I, about it. I don't know that I allocated, necessarily so. knew to call it marzipan i didn't know that term but like that flavor i absolutely know what it is that's the icing that you put on on holiday cookies you make it with with almond extract and mm -hmm. so um you know i i don't think that's an especially weird thing to get i think that's actually something that a lot of people get and you know whatever 
and it all comes back to like whatever your experiences are, whatever your whatever you ate at home, whatever you all cooked regularly. Those are the things that you're going to gravitate toward over and over and over again. Now that we're talking a little bit more about the uh, the writing and the content of it, you are the content editor for American Whiskey Magazine, um, also a contributor uh, for Whiskey Magazine, mm-hmm. and. I have not had a an editor on here before. I had a couple of authors, but not any editors. So I did want to ask, as a content editor, how much control and discretion do you have over anything from the stories that are being run to the brands and categories that get spotlighted in the tasting notes? So the tasting notes, I handle that all myself. Um, so all this that you see behind me is the the coming uh, whiskey tastings. I actually have uh, tasting scheduled out to 2025 right now. That's why you can't see my desk. And then there's a whole box over here that I pulled this curtain over because I'm running out of room. And then I have nowhere to put this guy. So I'm starting to really run out of room and I just poured samples for the next issue. So it's, I'm, I'm in this like constant, like panic cycle with, with the, the samples because I have a whole line of boxes. And what I do is I, I wait until I can't get in and out of my office anymore. And then I open all the boxes and I put them in the log for, you know, which issue they're going to go into and everything, everything goes in, in the order that I, that I receive it. Um, and then, you know, when I pour samples, I pull them from the shelf and then I rearrange everything and try to make room for everything. And then I realize I still don't have enough room for everything. So it's like this, this ongoing panic cycle, but, um, I will pretty much, if somebody wants to send me something, I say, send it, you know, like I, I tell people like, Hey, it's not going to publish for, you know, over a year. So if it's something that's like really special or unique or one-off and it doesn't make sense to really have that come out in you know a year year and a half then don't send it um but if you want to that's fine i'm not going to tell you no um you know i'll sometimes have people want to send me um you know their flavored stuff and so i'll say hey my tasters are peggy no stevens and susan riegler are you comfortable with that and a lot of times people say you know what no i'm not and they'll they'll not send it uh but sometimes people are like absolutely and they they send it anyway Um, so, you know, that I I don't do a lot of gatekeeping is, is kind of what I'm getting at. I tell, I'm just very honest about the process. And I'm like, if you're comfortable with this process, please send me whatever you would like to have, uh, sampled. Now there, there have been some things that I've been like, I'm not doing that to anybody. Um, there was a, a whiskey that had venison in it. And then there was a whiskey that had blue crabs in it. And I was like, both from the same distillery. And I was like, mm, I remember them well. <laughs> I don't think so. Nope, nope. But what I ended up, this was from Tamworth uh, Distillery in New Hampshire. And what I ended up learning from that is I, I finally said to their PR gal who I've known for years, I was like, honey, do they have any whiskey flavored whiskey? And she said, oh yeah, here. And she sent me Chakura Rye. And that has turned out to be one of my favorite rye whiskeys that I have ever tried. Um, so it was really funny because it started off, I was like, what are these crazy people doing, putting meat in their whiskey? Is that even a thing? And then it turns out they make this amazing rye whiskey. So, you know, it it's sometimes you have to kind of dig a little deeper mm-hmm. to get to the real story. Um, and that's, that's what I really enjoy doing. 
Um, so yeah, that is, that's pretty much the whole level of gatekeeping that I do as far as keeping, you know, as far as whether I will accept a sample for the magazine or not. I'm like, if, if you're comfortable with these parameters that I've laid out, go ahead and send it. And I should say that, you know, we hear often about, uh, old distilling traditions where of course they started distilling on a farm because the grain was going to go bad. I haven't heard the same thing about the venison or the crabs going bad, but, um, Hey, it's possible. I don't know. I've had some crabs that have been out for two hours. Probably don't want to eat those. So why yeah, not just do it? I mean, well, so the whole thing with the blue crabs is they were an invasive species and they were like, what do we do with all these crabs? And yeah, that, that was, was a like, special Okay, project, but whiskey, yeah. no. I don't think we need to do whiskey with that. Maybe some crab spread or something. I don't know. Maybe they tasted funky. I don't know. But I didn't try it. I didn't want to try it. It did not appeal to me. There are, yeah, there are some things that I'm just, I, I just, turned down was i don't i don't want to taste that i don't want yeah. to know what that tastes like <laughs> that is yeah. well and when they when they first pitched me the the venison one i was vegan and i was like oh, yeah no. that's fair yeah <laughs> i i've been blinded with uh ramp vodka and wicked pickle whiskey and a couple of others that just you know that there are the gimmicks or shots or things i was like and I'm, I'm good one of the things that i tasted recently was watermelon flavored whiskey and it tasted exactly oh, yeah. like watermelon hubba bubba you remember hubba bubba oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. It was i want like, to try it you're the second I, well, person who's mentioned it to me so and i was like i mean if if the goal here was to taste like my, my childhood gum they checked that box but it's not whiskey. It, I could not detect any flavor of whiskey in it. It was a hundred percent watermelon hubba bubba. That's fair. And I should also say, if uh, unless my eyes deceive me, um, if you need more room on the shelf, I do see a couple of William Heaven Hills that are really enjoying. <laughs> but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I'll tell you what. But, once I open them up and and pour off a couple of samples, all they do is sit in my dining room until I freak out and start hand. Like I literally will take a box of whiskey to my kid's pediatrician office when I when I take them in for their yearly visits I'm like here you go and then I, I have to like call and be like hey can I sneak this this whiskey in for and they're like okay and then I walk in with a giant box <laughs> I to do that. <laughs> it's I, I have a background on because again I, it's there's no video so I don't I don't have a picture behind me I want to get this a barrel wall eventually so I have something real behind me but yeah, my desk right now is just like, it looks like yours. It's just covered in, in bottles and samples and papers of different descriptors. And it's quite out of hand. So I need to give some stuff away. I have shelves on that wall, shelves on that wall, shelves over there. And then uh, the open bottles are generally in my dining room and half covering my dining room table. Same honestly same at the moment um it only gets cleaned off when we're playing a board game or something and it has to be moved elsewhere and then it goes right back my my husband was playing a board game yesterday and was like can i are these bottles in a specific and i was like don't touch them so he had to drag in some extra tables so this is all segueing quite well tonight this might be the best uh flow that i've ever had in this so on your second whiskey cast happy hour which still is one of my favorite, if not my favorite of all time. 
I feel like I cussed uh, more on that one. Oh, you did definitely, mm. but it was it was so worth it. Um, in Mark's intro for it going live, so not part of the live itself, but when he re-releases it, um, he was like, "Mag used a couple words that you know couldn't couldn't say or didn't say or say," and I was expecting a few, and then I was like, "Ooh, this was fun." <laughs> <laughs> Maggie has a potty <laughs> mouth. <laughs> I I loved it. Uh, so I mean, you covered a lot of topics that night. Uh, it was uh, you and Clay Risen mm-hmm. uh, with Mark, and this was in uh, February of twenty two. And one of the things I wanted to pull out was that when finishing bottles, uh, you said there's kind of a code of ethics in whiskey geekdom about mm-hmm. certain bottles in particular, and we all know which ones those are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that requires you to destroy the bottle after you're done with it. Mm-hmm. And this is purely a, a personal question because I wanted to ask, you know, what I do is um, some occasionally I'll keep if it's like a really special bottle or if it's mm-hmm. a decanter that I really like. Um, but I'm willing to destroy the bottles, but I usually strip the labels first. Mm. So I'll strip the labels and I don't know how it'll come across here, but because of the background, but I basically put them in my tasting journals. Oh, that's a good idea. I will do this for a second so you can actually see. Um, so it just lines my tasting journals and then it becomes oh. a, a hmm. kind of repertory, a scrapbook of what I've tried over the years. Um, some labels are a lot easier to get off than others. Mm-hmm. Jim Beam ones. Uh, I No, I take that back. Not all Jim Beam ones. Booker's labels are impossible. Yeah. You need dynamite shred. to get those. Yeah. 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 Nictors, same thing. Knob Creek, nice and easy. Barrel, yeah. nice and easy. Uh, but it obviously it's it's more economical in terms of space because you don't have all the bottles laying around. But um, in that sense, I don't know how many people are going through my recycling. But if anyone is going through my recycling to find bottles, it's just that extra step that they would have to take. They have to fake the label too. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, go oh, and I keep the corks. So only the bottle itself goes out. So I'm like, go ahead and try. Prove it to me that you can do it. Yeah. And so a lot of times, so because I'm in Kentucky, one of the things that we can do is there are folks who build things with bottles. So they do like soap dispensers or uh, candles or lamps, um, things like that. And so they're have been a couple of times when I've given a box of bottles to someone that I know is not going to refill them and try to sell them on the, on the black market. Um, I, that, that being said, um, I have not emptied a whiskey bottle in years, literally years. Um, I, the closest I have gotten is maybe a little more than halfway done um because i just have so much and it is rare for me to go back to the same bottle more than once um and if it if it if it's people coming over that's usually when the most uh liquid is drained from the bottles but even then i have not uh completely finished a bottle of whiskey in years so uh back when i i was still finishing bottles occasionally I was uh, finding people who would take those bottles and repurpose them because there are some beautiful, I mean, the artwork that goes into some of these bottles is absolutely gorgeous. And I know like there's part of me that's like, that's not the point, you know, that's not supposed to be the part that matters and, and all that kind of stuff. 
but I also appreciate the uh, attention to detail that you get with some of the bottles. Um, there are some absolutely gorgeous. Uh, one of the ones that I'm looking at up here is Coalition. Um, he actually had those um, bottles created by somebody who does perfume bottles in France. Um, so it's it's actually a really gorgeous bottle. Um, and, you know, like the old Fitz decanters that are coming out now, those are gorgeous. Um, I wish that I could still get old Fitz for $12.99. I'm always going to miss that. But, uh, you know, but the other thing that I do with my bottles is when I judge uh, whiskey competitions and I end up with like 57, uh, you know, three quarters full 50 mls, mm -hmm. I will oftentimes make an infinity bottle out of that. Um, and so sometimes like what I did one year was I put it all in a big uh, decanter and then I put it into like some little 200 mls and labeled it. So then whenever anybody came over, I'm like, oh, here you go. Take this home. You'll never try anything like that again. Uh, so that's actually kind of a fun thing to do with your old bottles is to kind of turn it into an infinity bottle or, you know, like make your own kind of blend in it and, and that kind of thing. This month's Impact Spotlight is on Nicknean. Founded by Annabelle Thomas, Nicknean has a pioneering approach to spirit making, putting innovation and sustainability at the forefront. Through Nicknean, Annabelle seeks to change the way the world thinks about whiskey from Scotland and to create a whiskey which could exist in harmony with our planet and its inhabitants. Nicknean has created a spirit with exceptional body and sweetness, showcasing their smooth and elegant house style. This is achieved through a combination of sourcing high-quality organic Scottish barley, gentle fermentation and distillation processes, and maturation in a combination of three carefully selected cask types. Ex-American whiskey casks, STR, shaved, toasted, and recharred casks that held red wine, and a small amount of Oloroso sherry casks. The result is flavors of lemon sherbet, juicy stone fruits, and spiced rye bread. This whiskey is set to disrupt the industry through Nicknean's commitment to sustainability and creative approach to distilling. With an uncompromising focus, the small team of eco-conscious drinks fanatics also dedicate 10% of their spirit production to trialing different yeasts not commonly found in whiskey distilling, all on their journey to seek out and find new flavors in their whiskey making. If you're a longtime listener, you know how interested I am in whiskeys and distilleries like this, and how excited I am that Impex is now bringing it stateside. Annabelle will be visiting Chicago for Whiskey and Barrel Night on October 25th, and will be hosting special masterclasses featuring the key components of Nicknean, along with their core organic single malts. These tastings will also include a sneak peek of Quiet Rebels Gordon. Only 630 bottles of the special one-time-only release will be coming to the States, so it's a release and an event you won't want to miss. Nicknean Organic Single Malt is currently on its way to specialty retailers across the U.S., for more information and questions on where to buy, please contact the Impex Beverages office at office at impexbev.com and follow on social media to never miss a release. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Jordan, I've uh, done that twice now, one with generally with uh, different types of rise. Uh, but my favorite one was at a certain point, I had every Elijah Craig barrel proof, including mm -hmm. the 12 original batches, the um, pre-release gift shop one that i found by accident really that was in 20 that was from 2011 2012 um all the way through a122 and i decided to put an ounce of everything 
into an infinity oh, decanter. Interesting. But every Elijah Craig batch from the very first one, Electric Powerproof batch, I should say, from the very beginning to A122, I still have some of it. I just try a little bit every couple of months and it's one of the best things I've ever had. <laughs> so, oh, wow. See, yeah. now I'm sad because I gave away a whole bunch of my, I, um, my Elijah Craig barrel proof stuff because I had so many of them and I was like, okay, this person likes Elijah Craig barrel proof. Here you go. Here are seven bottles of mm. different vintages. <laughs> Those old pirate bottles are, oh, they're so good. Yeah. Um, so switch, switching gears totally on this one, but also came from this same episode when you, Mark, and Clay were talking about uh, new brands, new-ish brands, such as uh, Remus came up, Clyde Mays, where these brands are, or rather I should say, the central figure in these brands is highly problematic for one reason or another. And they've each got multiple reasons. Um, Clay also mentioned, you know, Elijah Craig and Evan Williams were both known slaveholders. In Mark's words, we've been naming bourbons after assholes for years. Um, yes. And, and, you know, anyone even remotely interested in whiskey history knows the link between uh, not only slavery, but also um, things like uh, Confederate ideology and yeah. um, like rebel, go, rebel yell going to rebel now. Yeah. So it's not the exception. It's more the rule, it seems. So it does tend to be. Yeah. Yeah. So taking all of that into account as kind of one idea, which I know is a lot, but it, it as one idea as a, as a writer and as a journalist, what is your approach when you come across these stories in new brands or new things that you're exposed to? Well, I'll tell you um, with the Remus brand in particular, uh, when the folks were first coming up with that, it was an independent brand and then they ended up selling it to MGP. Um, MGP is they make amazing whiskey. I'm going to start by saying that, but they are just horrendous at branding. Um, and so when, when the original folks were coming up with uh, the Remus brand, I met one of them somewhere. Or I was talking to him on Twitter or something like that. And they're like, Oh, we're going to name a, a whiskey after George Remus. And I was like, you know, he murdered his wife. Right. And they're like, Oh, that'll never come up. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. And so, um, you know, I actually asked um, the folks at MGP one time because they were the the story that you get uh, when people talk about George Remus is the bitch had it coming story. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like that's always been problematic to me. Right. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> but like a, a lot of guys don't think about things like that. Uh, they, they, a lot of guys don't worry about uh, being murdered by their spouse, which is unfortunately something that women have to worry about. Um, so, you know, like I, I've heard the story repeated over and over and over again. So I knew the story very well because I'd heard it so many times like, oh, he was the king of the bootleggers and blah, blah. And he was the first person to successfully plead temporary insanity and got off for killing his wife. And um, so I, I asked the folks at MGP one time, like, hey, like, do you really think it was a good idea to buy this brand that, like, basically glorifies a guy who murdered his wife? And they're like, oh, well, you know, she and they told the bitch had a coming story. And I was like, 
all right, then I'm not going to get invited back here. And I'm fine with that. Um, so I, I tend to, um, not be, I'm, I'm not the type of person that sugarcoats things or, um, tries to, you know, find common ground. And, you know, like there are some things like you just kind of shouldn't have common ground on. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I would love to see the Remus brand do is to be like, Hey, you know what we fucked up, but now we have all this money. So why don't we give it to some women's charities? Let's, uh, do some domestic violence prevention or donate to a women's shelter or something like that. Um, you know, like I, I, I don't, I don't know if I'll see that. I don't know if that's, I, I, I feel like there are a lot of people who feel like this is not my problem. And, um, you know, that's, it's just, it's not their problem. Um, the, the rebel brand, uh, has been interesting. It's been interesting to watch that, like kind of rebrand, uh, because we all know what it is. Um, I, I would not be as, um, taken aback if it had started as the rebel brand but knowing that it started as rebel yell <laughs> and it was marketed toward uh southern white people um you know that's it's you know we we all hear that dog whistle loud and clear um and it's it's weird to me to see these large companies just be like this is fine <laughs> you know uh but it's even weirder you know like the when you when you look at things like Elijah Craig and, and, um, you know, other folks like that, George Washington, you know, like the Mount Vernon distillery. I love it. I go there all the time. Um, one of the things that we, we know, uh, because he was such a meticulous record keeper is we know the names of the enslaved men who worked in his distillery. And I usually can rattle them off the top of my head, but it's, it's been a long day and I just got my COVID booster. So, um, I, but I did write about them, uh, at one point in time, because I actually got to go into the archives and like, see some of these documents and things like that. Um, but you know, when you're, when you're looking at historical figures like that, you know, like the, these are people who existed and facts that exist about them. And when you have something like the Elijah Craig brand or, you know, whatever, whatever else that's named for somebody, uh, and the, these brands have been around for a long time. I understand that when these brands were first initially developed, people were not really necessarily thinking in terms of, you know, well, is this person, does this person have a squeaky clean image? Because no, they did not. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the more modern brands, like the Clyde Mays and the um, George Remus and things like that, we really should have known better on some of those. Um, you know, and I think that a lot of times the, I don't know, there, there's like kind of this mysticism around gangsters and it's, oh, it's so cool. And, you know, gangster movies and, and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, it's, we're, we're past the point where we can give people a pass on things. And there are so many other things that you can name brands after. Um, that's not to say that, you know, there are some brands that are named after creeks and rivers and, you know, geographical features. And, you know, as, if you really dig down into anything, you can find some problematic history. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, something as explicit as George Remus, who shot his wife in the chased her down in a taxi and shot her in the middle of the street. Maybe he does not need to be glorified. I, I agree with totally. There's nothing 
to disagree with there, I would say. Uh, and unfortunately, this, I mean, jokingly came to my mind that, you know, and we thought Slaptic was the worst branding in the last couple of years, <laughs> yeah. um, which was, that was his own personal, not only you bullshit know, and story, stuff but like that. It's like, I, I, I used to work at the liquor store, right? And this was when they were naming wines like bitch wine and, um, what, oh God, what were some of the other ones? But it was just like, it was shock value, right? Mm-hmm. But really when it comes down to it, it's just stupid. It's not that offensive. Um, you know, that, that it, it doesn't hurt anybody really. Um, so it's, it's just dumb and it's pandering to a certain audience. And I, I get that kind of thing. You know, that, that was never my, uh, my thing. I was never like, Oh, bitch wine, (laughs) you know? Um, although I did used to get bitch magazine, which was awesome. I need to, I need to re-up my subscription to that. But that was kind of, that's different. That's not, I don't know that, that I would definitely see as different because of both the staff writing and the audience intended for yes. it. Yes. Yes. Like those those matched in that case. Yes, so, exactly. That was exactly. Thing. That was more of a like taking back the word kind of a thing. Yeah. It's, exactly. And with yeah. with a lot of things, you know, people are like, well, what's the most shocking thing I can do? What's the most shocking thing I can do for attention? Um and as as, as parents, we like to tell our kids, you know, not all attention is good attention. Mm-hmm. Just remember that. And just to close at this topic, I, I think to your point, the modern brands in particular, there's even less, if there was any justification or excuse that you could make, there's even less so now that you could just do searches. Yeah. Not, not everything is in a hidden archive somewhere or in a seed bank, like simple Google searches. Absolutely. And really in the last five years, the amount of resources that have come online is astronomical and there's no excuse. You know, I remember, so I, I studied linguistic anthropology in college. I double majored English and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I remember learning that was so funny to me was that pharmaceutical companies actually employed linguists to research drug names to make sure it wasn't something that was offensive in another language. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, Obviously, they're not still doing that because they have some really weird names coming on the market now. But, you know, back then when people actually got paid for their expertise, uh, which is also a dying art, mm. um, <laughs> there there used to be somebody who could, like, look through all the different language databases and make sure that their drug name uh, didn't wasn't like fart in Chinese or whatever. I'm, I can't think of the exact example but there was a food item that i thought of i think it was a soda brand if i remember correctly uh that in it was from one of the major companies and in spanish it meant like disgusting something so and no and it was again a common word it wasn't some esoteric thing that nobody yeah. had used or 15th century verb my or something. kids would probably know they're all about that hashtag meme life okay i'm like right at the age edge where i'm also that life but I miss the new ones. Like I'm not, I don't go near TikTok. It's like, I don't have the energy. Oh yeah. Um, um, I'll take Instagram. I'm a, I'm a no TikTok. Art. We're, we're a no TikTok family. TikTok yeah. skews me out. It's, yeah, it's too much. Anyway, on a, on a lighter topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to uh, switch over again to bourbon women. And mm-hmm. I should say, before we get into this, uh, it sounds like I'm switching around a lot. It's because there are a lot of facets and I don't often get to talk to someone who 
um, is so uh, multifaceted in terms of what they're interested in and what you've written and talked about. Thank you. It's but the ADHD. Hey, if you got it, if you got it, flaunt <laughs> it. So um, it, it's, and that's no, of course, no disrespect to other grass. It's more, if you're talking about to a distillery, you're going to talk about the things that happen at that distillery and yep. their climate and all of that. So that's why it's, it sounds like I'm bouncing around. Anyway, with Bourbon Women, at uh, the time that you did your first Whiskey Cast Happy Hours, so this was August of 21, you, I think, had just been uh, elected the president to take the position in that following January of 22. No, I became president in 21. It wasn't 21. Okay, so you yeah, were yeah, president yeah. at that time. So I was president up for right. from January to uh, January 21 to January uh, 22. Right. So at that time, there were around 12 chapters around the country. You were adding about two to three coming online each year. What does that count look like now? That's a great question. Um, unfortunately, I have not uh, kept up with that information because, that I mean, it's such a rapidly evolving and fast growing group um, that, you know, once I stepped back and started going back into focusing on writing full time, um, I just, I'm not able to keep up with that information. So um, I, I would be surprised if they were not up to, you know, 15 or more branches at this point in time. Um, the, it, it's a really just a phenomenal organization. Um, the, the, um, symposium conference that they have every August brings in women from all over the country and even a few international folks. Um, and it's just absolutely amazing to see everybody coming together, uh, just for the love of brown water, right? Um, and they have so much, everybody has so much fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's a really great, it's, it's a whole conference. So there's like field trips and there's classes and there's tastings and there's, you know, like all kinds of, all kinds of stuff that people can do. And it's just a fun way to spend a weekend doing stuff, you know, for yourself, which is hard as a woman, because, you know, we have kids and careers and, and all this other stuff. And, uh, we, we would oftentimes have a good number of guys who would come to the symposium, which, you know, they were vastly outnumbered and they were very brave for being there. Um, but they were having the time of their lives as well. Um, I, I attended, uh, the Black Bourbon Society's, um, conference about a month ago here in Louisville, the bourbon and play. Um, and it was the same kind of thing. It was people from all over the country coming together and doing classes and distillery tours and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's, it's always a lot of fun to see, um, you know, the, the different group, like how, how these groups bring different groups of people together um, over this, you know, shared love of this one thing that's so unique. Um, it, and it's, I just really enjoy, um, I really enjoy events like that and groups like that because, you know, it's, it's bringing in, it's, it's bringing in different facets of um, humanity really for this thing that we should all be enjoying together. And I, I wasn't sure at first, I later clarified it just in re-listening that um, I thought it may have been both the symposium, the uh, bourbon women. I thought that they were exclusive to women. Now it's, of course, like you said, it's vastly 
um, majority women there, a couple of guys. Uh, but I mean, I got to say, as a guy who's very into this and also is very into the idea of just more people being involved, that sounds like the perfect place to be. And I'm not advocating for, you know, guys to just flood the place and, you know, sweep the majority. But like, for me, I would love to like see next August, what am I doing when the symposium is happening? And yeah, see, like, what is, what does a conference look like or meeting look like where it is mostly women leading it, organizing it, speaking, doing all these things. Cause I, I'll be honest, most of my experiences have been led by men. It is a totally different vibe. And, you know, I tell, I, I told people all the time when I was uh, in the president in the presidency with, with bourbon women that, you know, men are allowed to join. Uh, men are definitely allowed to come to the events. You're going to be outnumbered, you know, but it's, it's a totally different vibe. Um, it, it's very um, warm and, and welcoming. And that's not to say that, you know, the majority male events are not warm and welcoming. It's just a different vibe, right? Like dudes tend to be very serious about whiskey, like to the point where sometimes I just got to step back and, uh, you know, tell them to have a nice day. Um, but it's a totally different vibe when you look at some of these uh, more diverse groups of, of whiskey enthusiasts. Um, Kobe was another one. I went to their event, um, I guess last, maybe last November, it was maybe a year ago. And it was like the energy was just different. You know, uh, Kobe is the, is Kentucky's original black bourbon enthusiasts. Um, and so, I mean, the, like they had a live auction going on with an auctioneer. And so they, their whole thing is like raising money for charities. Um, they do a lot of like things like blessings in a backpack and, and things like that. Uh, you know, getting school supplies for kids and, and books and food and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so, but they have so much fun doing it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, all these, all these different groups putting on their, their big yearly events. I mean, it's, it, they're all totally different vibes. And so it's definitely well worthwhile to experience these things. Um, if you feel like, uh, you know, uh, should I go to that? Like, yes, they're selling tickets. They want your money, give them your money, go have a good time. That's what they want. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's really uh, it's been eye opening experiencing um, bourbon from all these different vantage points um, because you know there for a while it kind of was feeling like I was oh it's another bourbon festival oh it's another bourbon you know and it was kind of like copy paste repeat um, and then you know these all these different groups started bringing all this diversity into it. And they all have totally different vibes now. So it's, it's really, um, it's really interesting and a lot of fun. Well, know what I'll be doing next August to hopefully there you go. next August. And I hear on, on Kobe too, that one was, I knew a couple of people who were coming down from New York city, Jersey area uh, and were going. And I, someone did ask me, you know, can you come down for this? And it was just because it was so close to the KBF that I had to yeah. choose because, you know, I also have a day job. So right. I have so many days off. And right. so, you know, in this case, it was the first time going to the KBF and I wanted to make the most of it. And I I hear you in that there's a certain point where you're like, okay, it's another festival. I've, for the most part, stopped going to festivals around here because it's the same brands and it's the same people. Yeah. And 
Um, but this time the KBF has definitely met a lot of new brands, but also met a lot of the people that I've been talking to that I'd never met in person. Or they were always behind the handle or something, you know? That's uh, one of or- the great things about all these events. You know, like I really, I, I built my presence on Twitter um, and so getting out and finally starting to meet some of the people that I knew on Twitter was really fun because, you know, like we had spent all this time like talking and then like here, oh, you're a real person. Yay. Uh, but the nice thing about all the bourbon events is, you know, like I, I travel a lot and I am never alone. I travel by myself and then I get there and I find like 20 people that I know while I'm in the lobby of the hotel checking in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like. And I, I never have to dine alone. I never have to, you know, walk to a venue alone. You know, there's always that. That's one of the nice things about this community is because it it is kind of, okay, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, okay. So it's like a big family, but not in the like toxic workplace. We are family here, but like really and truly, these are the people that we spend the most time with. And, you know, we're all trying to work together toward a common goal of you know like making sure that people get accurate information and that they get the information that they're looking for because i feel like with the consumer education piece of it that's one of the reasons why the whiskey boom is booming so vigorously right now because Mm -hmm. consumers want to know that information and brands are willing to give it to them. And I'm kind of the intermediary for that. So, you know, we're all kind of working together for this common goal of getting people the information that they want. And so, you know, like there are a lot of folks in the industry who have become amazing friends of mine. Um, and, you know, I just, I really, I love, I I love being able to, no matter where I go, I'm going to see somebody that I know. I mean, it was lovely. I've, I keep telling the story because I love it so much. It's uh, I had been chasing Lisa Wicker for an interview for about a year. So just after she left Widow Jane and all the way through. And uh, for one reason or another, just things just kept getting moved. I couldn't make it. She couldn't make it. And eventually I reached out to her uh, saying I was going to be down for the KBF. And, you know, could she meet up? At that point, I wasn't even thinking interview. I was just like, let me just grab a drink with this woman who's done so many things. I just want to hear her talk. Um, and instead, we ended up talking for, she said, oh, yeah, come here. I'll host you at my house for an interview. I got maybe an hour and 10 of podcast content. We spoke for three hours plus total. Wow. Uh, I missed a couple of events at the KBF, and I was fine missing them because I was like, yeah. this is the better place to be. Because Absolutely. You know, and afterwards... You know, she, I mean, you know where she lives, but she, it's Bardstown. It's not a huge town. So, right. Um, she said, yeah, just, she was started to point me in the direction of the festival. And she's like, yeah, I'll just walk you over there. So it was great. And even then, since then, I've been able to, you know, text her a question or ask her. I'm, I'm waiting for her announcement on her new, where she's going now or where she is working now. Um, hasn't been made public yet, but I'm really, I want to tell people because it's exciting. Yep. Uh, I figure you know as well. So yep. <laughs> uh, yep. So I'm, I'm excited for that to come out, but I agree. It, it, it's just so nice to to see these people that not only people, let's say from the influencer side who I only knew their first names, some of them, um, but I knew their handles and I could pick them out, but also people like Lisa who uh, I, maybe it's different being from Kentucky or being from the area, but I, 
I, I'm not going to run into these people. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not going to just be at a distillery and have the master distiller walk out in the same way. I could maybe at some of the ones in New York, but it's just, it's different. Yeah. These people have, well, have these legendary statuses, you know? Well, and, and the thing that I like to remind people of is this is still a blue collar job, right? So um, I, I ran into somebody that I knew in the post office years ago, and it was right after Jim Rutledge had left uh, Four Roses. And this this person I was talking to was like, oh, I don't know why he wants to build a distillery. He's got millions and mil- why is he crowdfunding? He's got millions. And I was like, how much money do you think master distillers make? Yeah. And he was like, oh, he's a millionaire. It's like, he doesn't own the company. Like he just worked there. Mm -hmm. so there you know there's some misconception of you know what what these people are and what they do Mm -hmm. uh which i think kind of feeds into that like oh they're so like you know upper upper tier whatever the this is the most down-to-earth group of people you could ever ever talk to you know i talked to fred no and freddie no at the bourbon festival and uh, this was in the the video that we just published on on Whiskey Magazine's YouTube page yesterday. Uh, Fred, no, I asked Fred, no, what his favorite thing about the festival was, and he was like, "Well, I don't have to go very far; it's right across the street." <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you know, stuff like that. I mean, these are all just like really super down to earth people um, who you know are just pleasantly surprised that anybody has interest in what they do um so i i think it's it's a really fun uh it's a really fun thing to be enthusiastic about because like it's not like you know being a star trek nerd where the only time that you can meet jonathan frakes is if you go to the comic con and stand in line for three hours um you know there's still a lot of standing in line to meet these folks at like the bourbon festival and stuff but like if you go to the distillery like if you go out to wild turkey and you walk into the gift shop there's like a 90% chance that Jimmy Russell's going to be sitting in his on his little stool in the corner of the gift shop and he's going to love it if you come take pictures with him and ask him to sign things especially if it's sunday after church that seems yes. to be like the best spotting time for him yes <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah. he's such a sweet man oh my gosh i've missed him both times but granted it was it was off times i got to yeah, you know, see yeah. bo both times but uh uh, yeah, I mean, at the fest, just running into, I said hi to Fred. No, I missed Freddie, but I saw Fred and I was like, oh my God, like, I have to take a picture with this guy and, you know, introduce when, myself. When else are you going to get an opportunity? Right. right. And then um, I, two minutes later, I ran into Brent Elliott. And I swear to God, my first thought when I ran into him was, oh my God, he's tall. And <laughs> because I realized that of all the times I had seen him or been on a Zoom call or something, he's always sitting down. Yep. He's always behind his desk. Right. And like, I'm not, I'm normal height. I'm 5'10", but I was like, oh, okay, that's different. And And Jim Rutledge is also really tall. I think they had a height requirement for the Four Roses Master Distiller job. Seemingly, yeah. Um, (laughs) Al Young wasn't a shorty either. He wasn't distiller. No, yeah, he was also uh, tall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're right. When else are you going to do it? And it's so much fun. And now hopefully I'll get to interview these guys at some point. Um, I say guys, cause that's just the group that I happen to meet, but yeah, you know, um, no, that's not true. Um, there were several women there actually. Now that I think about it, Elliot peerless. Uh, yeah, there are a bunch that actually I have to reach out to you and follow up with, but it was fun. Who else are you going to do that? So I, 
want to take a little bit more time to talk about your writing. Um, and on the, I don't know how to actually call this podcast. So I'm just going to say the real blank podcast. Um, <laughs> you called, uh, you described your becoming a writer as kind of a personality flaw. Yes. With whiskey and writing coming together at the same time. And then yes. you doubled down on that on a different episode with Thirsty Thursdays saying that uh, when you were in college, your professor said that, you know, you wouldn't make any money as a writer. Now yes. you said, yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, but I, in listening to it, I made sure to hear that the professor said you wouldn't make any money as a writer, but not that you couldn't write. So, yeah. And I don't know that I necessarily picked up on that distinction because like, I just want to be a writer and get paid to be a writer. You know, like I, that is what I wanted. Um, there was a point in time. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember Samantha Brown. She was, she had a show. She has had several shows on the travel channel um over the years and i remember like watching her and then watching anthony bourdain and i was like i just want to travel the world and then write about it and so that was what i wanted more than anything and i had this really funny realization a couple of years ago i was like oh i accidentally became the thing that i wanted to be look at that that's neat um so that was that was kind of cool to have that realization but yes when i was in college um i double majored in english and philosophy um i really wanted to be a writer and then you know i had the professor who was like there's no money in writing it's going down the toilet you know and that that was really when digital pub publishing was was coming on first coming online and there was no money to be made. I mean, people were making like a dollar an article for a 2,500 word article, um, you know, back in those days. And um, so it was, um, it was a time when journalism was in decline, the digital landscape was really coming online. And, you know, blogging was really kind of becoming a thing, but not in a way like people like basically had their diary online. That's what blogging was back then. And I right. guess kind of right. what I do is kind of like my whiskey diary. Um, <laughs> I mean, that I, I, I don't try to obscure my own um, feelings in this. And that's really apparent in, in a story that I did earlier this year about becoming a Tennessee squire. That was just totally hard on my sleeve, you know, like trying to move through the grief of losing my grandfather. Um, and so, like, I appreciate that my teacher put it into that perspective because I would have been very, uh, I, well, I still felt like I was doing something wrong. You know, like when I first was, was becoming a writer and I was making like $3 an article and I was working, you know, I was working two jobs and, you know, I was working like all the time, constantly, what I would do back in those early days is I would do a preview review of local events. And so I would write the preview and then I would go to the event and then I would have to come home from the event at 10 o'clock at night, post, write uh, and post the recap to go live the next morning. And so it was, it was a grueling pace that I was living at and not making very much money doing it. Um, but it gave me an opportunity to get out there and go to all the events, meet all the people, you know, that's how I met Michael Beach. That's how I met Fred. No, that's how I met Jim Rutledge. You know, like I met all these people doing that grueling pace for no money, basically. Um, and, um, you know, it's, 
it, it has grown to where I am getting paid a decent amount for a trade journalist. And you should really Google what a trade journalist makes sometime because I'm a part-time trade journalist and full-time trade journalists don't make very much money and I'm part-time. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's absolutely a character flaw because like at a certain point I was like, I can't just not be a writer. This is who I am. Like I'm a writer and I need to write things. And the convergence of the whiskey was really just, um, you know, my friend Joan calls it kismet. Um, you know, it was totally a coincidence. You know, I was working part-time at the liquor store and my kids were little because I needed to get out of the house mm -hmm. and be at a place where there were no children for a few hours a day. <laughs> and I was really into the farm to table movement. And I went there thinking I better learn about wine because I had spent a lot of time working in food service. I had been a food service manager, a short order cook, a whole bunch of other things in food service. And I was like, okay, so I'll learn about wine and that'll give me a new marketable skill when I go back and I can maybe be a server or bartender, or whatever, you know, figure out what to do next. Mm -hmm. um, and so I very quickly learned that wine people were not my people. And because I had such a strong interest in the farm to table table movement, I mean, I remember so vividly standing at the cash register one day, staring at the bourbon aisle. I was like, hey, you know what? They make that right down the road. I should probably learn about that. And, you know, that was back when master distillers would come and do tastings and bottle signings in the store and nobody knew who they were. Nobody cared. You know, this was like 13 years ago. Um, and so I started really learning about whiskey and then, um, met Jim Rutledge, uh, when he was still with four roses and it was crazy busy. And every time I would try to go talk to him, a whole horde of people would come in and I would have to go right back to the cash register. And then he was packing up to leave and I had to go on break. And I was like sitting back in the break room, eating my sad little peanut butter sandwich. And the next thing I knew, Jim comes through the door with bottles in one hand, cups in the other hand. And he's like, you didn't get to do my tasting. And he sat down with me for like 20 minutes and he taught me the proper bourbon tasting technique, a little bit about the history of Four Roses, like what you can taste in this bottle versus this bottle. And I retained none of it other than the feeling that like, oh my God, this is amazing. I have to tell the whole world about this. And that's when I quit my job and started writing about whiskey. Um, and so like, it was really just this feeling that I got like, this is the path that I'm supposed to be on. And so that was really, you know, that's really the character flaw, I guess. I, I think it's probably not super normal to quit your job and, and go in a completely different direction. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was the right move for me at the time. And it put me on the path that I'm on now. And, you know, like I, I constantly kind of get these signs reassuring me that I'm headed in the right direction and one of one of those signs was, um, you know, the morning that my grandfather died in February of this year, when I was sitting on my uh, dining room floor, looking through a bin of his belongings, trying to find a, a photo for his obituary. Um, and I, I found his um, Jack Daniels, Tennessee Squire certificate. And I was like, wait a minute, what is Jack Daniel doing in a box with my great grandparents, you know? And, um, I, I really felt, you know, it, it felt, it was a very powerful moment for me because, you know, like I was kind of feeling a little burned out by the pace 
and, you know, all the things that I do and not making a whole lot of money. And I had pitched a whole bunch of publications and not heard anything back. And I was feeling really down about my decision and really down about myself and kind of taking it personally. And then I suddenly had this like message in a bottle from my grandparents, like, Hey, you're going in the right direction. We're here. We got you keep going. And that kind of like reinvigorated um, my whole outlook on being a writer um, because, you know, I just had this, this strong feeling like, okay, this is a sign that I'm going in the right direction. So, I mean, that's a whole roundabout way to say like, yes, um, writing is a character flaw and you'll never make any money. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to decide like if you're going to let the character flaw destroy you, I guess. And it's, I mean, it's worth noting, I, you just answered a question that I had, which was kind of what the, what the climb looked like for you. And I think you answered it best by saying, you know, you looked at yourself a couple of years ago and said, I accidentally became what I wanted to be. And yeah, between that, oh, actually, before I forget, um, this is a complete throwaway question, but I'm just going to throw it there anyway, which is um, when you met Jim Rutledge in the liquor store and you were eating the peanut butter sandwich. Did he at least give you something to cleanse your palate first before trying the four roses or was it? I had water. I, okay. I always, I always have a water bottle with me, like always and always. I am the best hydrated person you'll ever meet. <laughs> Good. Most people didn't make it out of the KBF so hydrated. So I, that's I know. Well, they had the one water thing and it was stuffed way back in a, in a corner. That was one of the things I fussed at him about. That's one of the things yeah. like I, even before that, I, I tweeted something about there's no excuse for a whiskey festival that doesn't have water absolutely everywhere. Oh, yeah. And I firmly believe that, like, if you're giving people free whiskey, I mean, they pay for the ticket, right? But, like, then people get in there and start acting like animals. You have to give them lots of water and mm -hmm. make them drink it. And we got lucky this year. Last year, I heard it was horribly hot. This yeah. year, it was wonderful weather. Oh, it was the whole perfect time. weather. Absolutely yeah. beautiful. But you're right. So the one should have just gone to Costco, Walmart, just cleared the shelves of the water and just put them on stacks wherever people need. I them. mean, really, for big events like that, a lot of the spring water companies will bring will drive a forklift with a pallet of water into your event for you. Exactly. You know, so there's there's really there's no excuse for not having water absolutely everywhere. And so we won't have time to go, obviously, into uh, too many of these uh, tonight, but. I did just want to mention, because I promised it up top, just a couple of the publications that you've written for, including starting from Louisville.com, you know, doing local mm -hmm. writing to mm -hmm. Whiskey Wash, Imbibe Magazine, Entrepreneur, Cigar Aficionado, uh, of course, writing on Medium as well uh, in personal capacity or personal professional capacity, I should say, and so many different avenues, I would say up to the point where now being content editor of American Whiskey Magazine. And you've climbed this hill, whether accidentally or not, in a way that clearly has continued to uh, make you happy despite the bumps in the road mm -hmm. and the needing. I completely hear you on needing that little shot of rejuvenation every once in a while. Yep. Um, and so I guess for my the question that I'll ask then is for people who... Uh, I'll be honest, like myself, who are interested in writing for these publications or getting their voice out there, finding that voice, uh, understanding that you kind of came about it accidentally or however you'd like to describe it. Looking back, what would you give as advice for getting yourself out there? This is one of the hardest questions that I get all the time. 
Um, and, and really the answer that I give is not what people want to hear. Like I, you could not duplicate what I did at this point because it was really a right place, right time kind of a situation. Um, you know, so that's, that's a disappointing answer for a lot of people. Um, what I recommend to people is, you know, if you're gonna start a blog or a podcast or whatever, like try to find a vantage point or, you know, some sort of, uh, common thread that's kind of different from what other folks are doing so that you can add to the conversation, uh, because you're never going to be better, uh, you know, you're never going to be better at whiskey cast than Mark is at whiskey cast, right? So you can't be the next whiskey cast. You can be something else. Um, or, you know, you're never going to be better than, you know, whatever publication you want to try to compete with. There's, there's really no reason to compete because there's, there's really enough space for everybody, if you can find that unique vantage point from which to to cover it. I agree. I, like I said, very honestly, you know, it's something that I read these whiskey magazines, be it American Whiskey Magazine, Whiskey Magazine, Whiskey Advocate, Bourbon Review. And um, when I'm trying to write for my own site, exactly what you said, trying to just figure out what's my vantage point, what's what am I adding? And um, just switching to a personal note just for a second on that, uh, I have found that I've been writing a lot less recently, actually, <laughs> for the reason that I've, instead of writing, I was writing like a full-fledged 500 to 1,000 word review a day oh, for wow. a long time. And um, basically taking off Wednesdays when the podcast episode would go live and maybe a weekend day. But like, yeah. you know, two years ago, I did the September of stag for bourbon heritage month. Mm. And every day I, I managed to get samples at the time of every George T stag and every stag junior that had been released. And I tried them all blind for 30 days. Wow. It took three per day for 30 days or something. No, two per day. Well, something like that. And I was writing, I was writing these reviews for, and it was just burning me out. Yeah. Because there's just, there's only so much. And so I decided both consciously and unconsciously that instead I'm going to do some video reviews. I'll post them on Instagram, do some, some written ones mm -hmm. where I feel like I have something to add. So like when uh, favorite examples, like when Doc Swinson's came out with their French toasted, which was one of my favorite releases of last year, mm -hmm. um, they used brand, instead of using a used French oak, they used brand new French oak from specific forest in France, one of the five noble forests. Hmm. And so instead of just doing the review, I went into a whole discussion of the history of the forest, the why the tyloses in this wood were different than ones you would find in American oak, why French oak is a different um, ester and guaiacol profile and all these things. Because there I felt like I could add something. I had the scientific mm -hmm. background that I could do something, yeah. but I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily write a review or um, I'm just looking around at my desk right now and honestly everything out here I want to I want to write about but I'm not going to be able to because yeah. there's not enough time and there's not enough things to say and um, being that's why I don't do reviews yeah, it, I, out of self-defense yeah now I'm it's like one or two a week now maybe and of those full-length ones because it's just I appreciate being sent things but there's also so many things I just can't review I just don't have time yeah 
I'm not going to do a BTAC review one because I don't get them, but also, and I'm not even going to ask for them because, yeah, you know, everybody else is doing that already. Exactly. Where, where am I? I'm better off looking at a brand like, like Glens Creek is one of my favorite ones to talk about because no, not enough people are talking about them. Absolutely. Yeah. I love spotlighting the smaller producers. Um, But to your point, there was a point in time about a year and a half ago when um, every time it came time to do my whiskey and cigar pairing column, I just absolutely dreaded it. And I would push it off. I would procrastinate until the last possible second to do it. And then at a certain point, I was like, you know what? If drinking whiskey and smoking cigars is this agonizing, maybe it's time to take a step back from it. And so I handed that column off to a colleague for a while uh, because I was just like, I kind of don't want to do this anymore. And then I started to feel like, okay, I kind of missed this. And so I took it back over um, and I've done a couple, I've done two in a row now. Um, And so, you know, like it was nice to have that break though. Sometimes you have to just like, you have to get this perspective of, you know what, if drinking whiskey becomes a chore, it is time to step back. 100%. All right. With that, I'm going to end with lighter question again, Okay. which is um, your just about family history. Okay. So uh, you've got, if I heard this correctly, you've got family history going back to the Daniel Boone days in Kentucky mm-hmm. yep. or in the area, I should say. Yep. And uh, so in some ways you kind of have bourbon and whiskey in your blood. And I, I tend to think that, or I tended to think, I should say that everyone in Kentucky drank bourbon and all that, but I've grown to realize it's not true. Most. But <laughs> <not> true. <laughs> um, Pretty close to true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and on the, uh, on the other hand, you had a great quote. You said that bourbon is like wallpaper in Kentucky. It's yep. everywhere in the background, but you don't really notice it. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you said wine people weren't your type. I know that was, there was like the pinky thing and the, snobbery that had to go with it yeah uh were you know your parents or anyone else in your family particularly interested in in bourbon drinking and was like was there a culture that particularly no it was not something that i grew up with um and uh, i have an actually really funny story um so my my grandfather passed away my mother passed away this year my aunt my cousin like we've we've had a really rough year in the family been one of those years, um, yeah yeah it's it's been really rough and then yeah. you know but i've been working really hard for the last couple of years um you know trying to find some answers to genealogy questions that i had you know and my grandpa gave me a lot of information before he passed away there's one thing that i'm kicking myself uh that i didn't i didn't get from him which is where his grandparents are buried because i cannot find them right now Um, But he gave me a tremendous amount of information uh, before he passed away. And so uh, some of the things that I I would look at, um, I would I would get sucked down these rabbit holes and I would go down, you know, a line of genealogy until I I found something that I I couldn't get past it. And so I have uh, this. 70 something I'm not allowed to say actually how old she is. She's a 70 something uh, BFF from the Bronx. Uh, her name is Joan. I call her Joni from the Bronx. And she's like really uh, just a crackerjack genealogy researcher. 
And so I got stuck on one of the, one of the lines trying to connect, uh, a couple of people. And I was like, I'm, I'm stuck on this person. Can you, can you figure, see what you can figure out? She just has a vast knowledge of all the different tools and where to look for things and, and all that kind of stuff. And so she calls me up and she was like, was Evan Williams a real person? And I was like, um, yeah, he was the wharf master. He had a brick making company and he was a distiller. Yep. But he was a real guy. I think he married into your family. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. He, he married Hannah butcher's daughter. And I was like, Oh, no way. And so he, he, I'm not a direct descendant, but he married my like fifth, fourth or fifth great grandfather's sister. And so when, when, but when you live in Kentucky, these are common stories, right? Because, you know, like we have this resurgence of these brands and they're like, my great, great, great grandpappy's special recipe. It's never their special recipe. It's whatever they can buy from other distilleries. Mm -hmm. Um, but like they have that story, they have that connection and it's a legitimate connection. And, you know, they didn't know that person obviously, but like, you know, that, that history is definitely there. Uh, one of the brands that's making a comeback right now is McBrayer. Uh, William McBrayer was a judge and he was instrumental in some of the early legislation around, uh, you know, bourbon in Kentucky and the some of his descendants who are actually still McBrayers, uh, a lot of times, you know, those uh, names disappear mm -hmm. uh, over time, but they're actually still McBrayers. They're they're bringing back the McBrayer family legacy. So that's pretty cool to see. Um, you know, when you have somebody like Steve Beam, uh, who is a Beam on his dad's side, but a Dant on his mother's side, like. You know, that Steve Fonte said something really funny the other day. He said he wasn't born, he was distilled. And I was like, that is hilarious and also probably true. Um, <laughs> so it's really interesting to see all these folks. Um, you know, when you when you go digging, if you if you if you look far far enough back, if you're actually from Kentucky you're going to find some distillers and really like it, they don't even have to be commercial distillers, you know, because this was an agricultural product. Everybody was making it. Everybody, you know, they were, they needed something, they needed a, a commodity product to be able, you know, value added commodity product to be able to sell on the market, to get the money that they needed for all the things that they were trying to do. I spent a fantastic afternoon with Stephen Fonte. He toured me around Cave Hill Cemetery. Uh, and we got uh, drinks at Neat with Bernie Lovers. It was one of the best afternoons of my life. That's but that awesome. guy's got, he's got some stories. And he's, he's I think, hands down one of the top two or three best storytellers in this industry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, he, uh, he has a gift for it. He has the showmanship yeah. gene. Yeah, and my favorite thing he said was that there are no secrets in Kentucky bourbon because the beams get together at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. And I mean, as you said, if you dig a little deeper, you'll find a beam, a no, uh, one a of the, a dance, a Russell, yeah, some at just all of them. Uh, and it's fascinating. You can get this diversity that you have in Kentucky whiskey and Kentucky bourbon in particular, all kind of fruit of the same very wide tree. And yes, but 
it makes it fun. One of the one of the kind of crass things that people say is uh, you're not supposed to talk about how everybody's related in the Kentucky bourbon industry because they're all they're all pretty a lot more closely related than uh, <laughs> people would like to admit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, well, I, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, hope you enjoyed as much as I have. Thank you for um, having me. This was a lot of fun. And um, hang on with me for just a minute after I finish recording. Okay, you got uh, it. I would say uh, there were a couple of things we didn't get you tonight just for, for time's sake, because um, otherwise this interview could just keep going. Uh, because I talk too much. It's okay. You no, can say it. No, it's all. I would say <laughs> I had, like I said, I had a ton of questions because I knew it was going to be a different kind of interview. Um, but, you know, I, I want to just highlight quickly your interest in American single malts, your interest in mm -hmm. heritage green movements. You mentioned uh, Steve Bayshore at George Washington. Um, you've also talk, spoken about Rose and Rye in other contexts. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are just two things that um, were on my list, but I'm going to pare down for tonight, but I am interested in your writing on them. Um, I would also say uh, for listeners to take a look at the most recent uh, issue. There we go. Blanked on that word for a second. The most recent issue of um, I believe it's American Whiskey Magazine uh, for an interview with Tracy Franklin uh, mm -hmm. that Maggie conducted. Uh, it was a wonderful article to read an interview. Uh, Tracy was one of the first two recipients of the Jack and Nearest initiative. That was on, that's Whiskey Mag Online. Yeah, that, that was, I was, trying to, I was like, okay. wait a minute. So she's actually, I also interviewed her for Relish and uh, Whiskey Magazine. And she's, uh, she's on the cover for that one. There we go. Okay, so I saw that cover, and that's why I had my confusion yeah. in my notes between them. So yep. yes, Whiskey Mag Online, it is available now. It's okay. I do too many things. It's not a bad thing. Like we seem to be kind of kindred in the way. I, like you seem like you're not happy if you're not busy. Yeah. So it's the ADHD. <laughs> yeah. So with all that, tons to read. It's got hundreds of articles. Take a look at them. Uh, you can listen to her, obviously, on this podcast if you've been listening, but also the ones that I'll link in the show notes to hear how I got to these questions. Um, thank you again to Maggie and also to our new sponsors who make this podcast possible. You'll see them in the show notes as well. With that, I'll see you all next week. Thanks, David. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedding.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeymywedding. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring, or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers, thank for the support, and see you next time.